Lawrence Krauss is uh, an atheistic professor. Uh, he teaches at uh, Arizona State University, and he's written books such as uh, The Universe from Nothing. And he goes around and he does debates, and one f- series of debates he did was with William Lane Craig. Some of you know who William Lane Craig is. He's a foremost uh, apologist, defender of the Christian faith. And so he and Lawrence Krauss did a series of debates. Um, You can find them on YouTube. And uh, Lawrence Krauss's argument, I'm going to summarize it for you, okay? I'm going to give you the um, Reader's Digest version version of, of his argument. And his argument basically is people used to believe in God back when they didn't know anything. Back when they needed God to explain why stars hung in place, why, uh, why things got hot, why things got cold, why this or why that, they had to use uh, mythological stories. Um, you could think of uh, a pantheon of gods in different uh, eras that people believed in. You got Zeus and his host different gods, and different gods charge of different things. Why? Because you needed a god to try to explain how the ocean worked the way it did, so you need a god of the ocean. And this mysterious thing we call love, you need a god of, of love. This, this crazy thing that is called war, we need a god who kind of handles that, manages that. Who's to say one side wins or the other side doesn't? Well, there's a god for that. But now we've progressed as a society, haven't we? We've progressed as a society, and now we have science And science explains how things move, how things turn, why things are there, and what they do and what they don't do, what particles are, and rays and photons, and all this kind of stuff. And he throws a lot of, you know, things that go over most of the audience's head, including myself. And he says, these are things that we understand now. And now that we understand these things, we don't need God anymore. That's an exact quote. He goes on to say things like, Jesus is not, he's not different from any of the other gods. He's just as uh, harsh and brutal and bad as any other god. That should discredit him right there. Even secular uh, professors would see that there's a difference with Jesus. But that's his argument. That's his argument. And I think that this is what happens in societies. That as societies progress, as societies advance, in technology, in ingenuity, they begin to grow a sense of uh, self-dependence. And suddenly they don't need God anymore because they don't need God anymore. That was just something that was a crutch to lean on when we didn't understand things. So we we weren't as scared when we were able to explain things with God. But now that we have science, we don't need Him anymore. And it's a need-based argument. It's not a logical argument. Whether I feel like I need oxygen or not, doesn't matter. it doesn't matter if I feel like I need oxygen. Is oxygen there? Do I need oxygen? But no, that's not the argument. The argument is just, hey, we're so smart, we don't need God to explain things anymore. Let's dump God and let's just continue to investigate the things that we don't know, ironically. Because even he would admit we don't know everything. But this is a pattern that's happened from our earliest grandparents. This is not something new. This isn't something that's just taking America, you know. This is something that's been a pattern since our earliest grandparents. And we're going to find that in Genesis chapter 11. 
Genesis chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can slip your hand up and someone will bring one to you. But Genesis is the first book of the Bible, first book of the Old Testament. Genesis is the book about beginnings. And we're going to see how this pattern began, where this pattern started. Genesis chapter 11. Beginning verse 1, Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found the plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now you'll have to remember that, uh, you know, last week we covered Noah and the ark, not a uh, necessarily a precious moment story you know we might have the little figurines and the mobile swinging around your baby's crib with the cute animals all stuffed into a little boat Um, that's nice but when you read the story it's it's a little darker than that Uh, sin crept in and was so infectious it took over society and people were so bad that their thoughts were evil continually all the time so God intervened with a worldwide flood but saved Noah's family Well, Noah had three sons, and these three sons had children, and those children had children, and it's not very long before you start to see sin taking hold again. Not several generations after Noah, not the generation after Noah, but the same people that came off of that ark that were saved and the rest of the world destroyed because of sin. Immediately you see the ramifications that sin is still infected has still infected this family. Noah gets drunk. Uh, One of his sons, uh, rather than covering him, makes fun of it. You remember the shame that's associated with nakedness and sin uh, back with Adam and Eve. The other two sons cover their father without looking at him, and then Noah pronounces a curse on Ham and all his descendants. His descendants would be Canaan um, and Uh, others. You can find that in the table of nations. Now, why do I tell you all that? Because the author is tracking the infection. The author is tracking the promise through Abram, uh, who were Abram's grandparents, but he's also tracking this infection. How did we get all these societies that are warring against each other, all the societies that Israel has to fight against for them to get their land and all this stuff? This is how they happened. But what's not been explained is how they've been diverse. How did, you, how did you get this kind of language and that kind of language? How did people split apart? Well, it wasn't because they obeyed God. It was because several generations after Noah, after Ham, the one that disobeyed, disrespected, dishonored his father, came a mighty warrior named Nimrod. You can find that in chapter 10. And he was in charge of this city. And what happened was the city, the people of the city decided, realized, discovered that they're pretty smart. 
Because they found out how to make bricks when they didn't have stone. They, find it, they found out how to make mortar when they didn't have mortar. That's why the passage gives us that little clue. Now, you and I are like, <laughs> they found out how to make bricks. Idiots! Okay, well, you know, a million years from now, people are going to think we're idiots, right? But you look back, and you see these people that didn't have pyramids. They didn't have buildings, uh, skyscrapers. They didn't have these things, you know, large staircases and things like that. But they discovered how to do it. And so in verse 3, there's not necessarily a hint of sin yet, but it says, They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So there's a discovery of technology. We found out how to make bricks. Wow, we are awesome. Wow, we're pretty good. How do I know that's what they were saying? How do we know that's what they were thinking? Because of their next logical conclusion. Once they discovered how to make bricks, their next phrase, after come let us make bricks, their next phrase was, verse 4, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Now you remember when Noah came off the ark, the first thing he did? What's the first thing he did? He built an altar. Who's that for? God. He built something for God. He stacked stones. He said, this is for God. This is for God because he saved us. This is for God because he is the true God. He's the one in charge. He's the one we should be serving. Fast forward a few generations and they learn how to do more than just stack stones. They learn how to make brick with mortar. And their conclusion isn't an altar for God. It isn't a place of worship for God. It's let's build for us something that gets us to touch the divine realm without divine help. Let us build a city for ourselves, a city and a tower. Some authors would say that in the Hebrew, the words should belong together and that it should say, let us build ourselves a city tower. In other words, not a city and then in the middle of city somewhere a tower, but that the tower itself, this entire edifice is the city. This is how huge this thing is going to be. And that with various levels, they would keep building on it, level upon level, to reach the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let's do this for us. Let's do something that will be a testament to us so everyone will remember our name. They wanted to come and sing a song. Our name is a strong and mighty tower. Our name, right? That's what they wanted. That was their goal. They wanted the top of it to be in the heavens. Why? Because they wanted to touch the fluffy clouds and see what they were made of? No, because they understand that there's a divine realm that we can't access. And we want to get up there. Let us make a name for ourselves. Because if we don't, look at the next piece will be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. If we don't make a name for ourselves, if we don't build a city and build a tower, then we're going to spread out. And we don't want that. Well, what's the problem with that? Because that's what God wants. God commanded it twice. If you look at chapter 1, verse 28, just flip back, it's just a few chapters earlier, chapter 1, verse 28, God creates Adam, In his own image, 
and Eve, male and female, he created them. Verse 27, so Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, here's their first command. The command that was given to man before sin ever entered the world. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. The re- one of the reasons why God, man was made in God's image was because God has dominion. And for man to reflect what God is like, man should have dominion. But man is not going to have dominion over the whole earth if man just holds up and does his own little thing. He's got to spread out and fill the whole earth. God wanted this spread to happen. And then when you go to uh, the story of the flood, people are wiped out. Noah is essentially the next Adam. Things are starting all over again with Adam. And then chapter 9, verse 28 or 9 verse 1, I'm sorry, chapter 9 verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Don't worry about the lions and the tigers and the bears because they're going to fear you and you're going to learn how to make cages and traps and leashes and stuff like that. You'll be fine. You'll be in charge of all those animals. So don't fear obeying this rule. Go out there into the forest the jungle, the wilderness. Don't not go out there because of the animals. Go out there and you're going to have dominion over the animals. I'm going to hand them over to you. Go have dominion over the animals. Spread out. Fill the earth. Multiply. So that was a command that he gave to Adam. That was a command he gave to Noah. Then several generations after Noah, they say, you know what? We're so smart. We're not going to be able to maximize our smartness. We're not going to be able to do all that we're able to do if we all split apart. Let's unite. And let's build a tower so that we have a place to hold us. Because if we don't, then we end up spreading out. Which is the exact opposite of what God expressly commanded. I think this already should strike a chord with us, a pattern that we'll see in society until Jesus returns, a pattern that lies dormant within each of our hearts, some of us less dormant than others. But the more we think of ourselves, the the higher view we have of ourselves, the less we think of our need for God. I mean, if you spend a lot of your prayer praying for success, careful, careful. Do you remember when Jesus said how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven? Is it because God doesn't like rich people? No, he knows what riches will do to you. This is why the gospel spreads so rapidly, so expansively in impoverished areas. And then in wealthy areas, nobody needs God. That's true with countries, that's true with cities all around the world. And it begins with something in your heart. The more successful, the more advanced you feel, the higher you feel of yourself, the harder it is to sense your real need for God. Why does James say something crazy like, count it as joy, brothers, when you experience trials? Why would I count a trial as joy? Because if you didn't have trials, you would take joy in your success. You would take joy in your comfort. You would be happy with how many things you have, how successful you are, how many degrees you have, or how great your job is, or what your car is like. 
We get happy over the dumbest things. God knows that. And so God steps in to intervene in verses 5 and following. Verse 5, it says, The Lord and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. So this isn't before the tower is built. God's watching this and the, the tower is there. Which the children of man had built. I want you to just see the irony a little bit. This huge tower that man built and is so impressive. It's supposed to touch the heavens. God's got to go like this to look at it. That's what's happening in the text. Okay? This impressive huge tower, God has to go down to go look at it and go, okay, let me talk to these people. It's foolish. The Lord came down to see the tower, to see the city. Now, we know God sees all things. Why would the author tell us that he came down? It's to show you the, how the, the story is just dripping with irony. It's ridiculous. Children of man had built this tower. The Lord came down to see it. And then verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now that passage has always kind of bothered me. It almost makes God look like he got scared for a second. Like, oh my goodness, they have one language, they're communicating together, they're uniting together, and if they're all united, who knows, they could depose me, and they could take over heaven, and they can do all kinds of stuff. They're going to team up with Satan. And... But if you just read any other passage in the Bible, you see that that can't be what's happening. The, the Bible overemphasizes, not over, but it could overemphasize anything. It overemphasizes the fact that God is sovereign. God is in control. He speaks worlds into existence. It's a theme in Genesis. So what's happening here? I think what's happening here is he's realizing this is the beginning of much worse troubles to come. They're going to be able to engage in much greater evils. This is opening the door to things that are going to be much worse. So I better stop it now. For their sake. God's not scared. He sees what's going to happen to humanity. He's not going to send another flood because he promised he would not do that. So what does he do? Now, I want you to, I love this little, this passage. It's, it's very, uh, it's well written. I know we're, we're supposed to say that about every passage in the Bible, but I mean really, it's clever. And uh, some of it's saved in the English. You see when they decided what they were going to do, they said, come let us make bricks. Come let us make a name for ourselves. And then God says in verse 7, come let us go down and confuse their language. So man gathers together and says, come let us make bricks. We are awesome. And because we're awesome, come let us make a tower and make a name for ourselves. Let's make ourselves famous. Come let us make a name for ourselves and come let us disobey God's command. And God says, let's not. When man says, come let us do this and come let us do that, it only goes if God says yes. But verse 7, God says, come let us reverse that. Then it's reversed. Sovereignty, control. Come let us go down 
and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. God's plan still happened. They had to do it kicking and screaming, but they did it. Therefore, its name was called Babel. The word in Hebrew for Babel sounds like the word for confused. Because there, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. What God wanted to happen still happened. God's plans don't get derailed. Our plans get derailed if our plans are not in keeping with God's plans. And so what we see in this passage is that God actively opposes proud rebellion. This isn't the only place to see that. Many of you know 1 Peter 5.5 5 and James 4.6, the same quote. But God opposes, opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Those of us that feel like we don't need God, and the more we feel we are self-dependent, it doesn't say God is indifferent toward those people. God opposes those people. So you can live a life where God is for you or God is against you, actively working against you. You're not going to win. You're not going to win that battle. But the humble, he, he gives grace to. And so when you look at this, you see these people that found out they were pretty smart. And in finding out that they were pretty smart, they decided to directly disobey God's command. And guys, that's always the pattern. You, f- you feel like you're doing pretty good. You feel pretty good about yourself. You want more of it, meaning you want less of God. Once you want less of God, you find it easy to disobey. It doesn't tell us that they didn't believe God existed. It doesn't tell us that they thought God wasn't around anymore. It just tells us that God was irrelevant to them. His commandment to them was irrelevant. They wanted to do their own thing. And why did they want to do their own thing? Because they felt so good about themselves. Our hope in our society, in our culture, uh, we put a lot of hope in ingenuity, in progress, in advancement, in uniting mankind. What if we just got together? If we just had more getting along, if we had more peace. Do you remember when all the peace symbols came out and everybody was doing this? Did sin go down or did sin skyrocket? I mean, let's all get together. And the Beatles gave us that song. Come on, everybody. Get together around what? Sin goes up, marriage crumbles. I mean, we want to build rehabilitation programs, but not with Jesus in it. We want, to, we want to have a better legislation and better laws, but just no Jesus in it. And all we get is a society that keeps getting worse and worse. So this happens at the societal level. Hope is not in ingenuity. Hope is not in progress. Hope is not in uniting mankind. Hope is only in Christ. 
You ever get to that passage in Acts chapter 2? You remember Jesus told his disciples, I have to go. I can't stay with you guys. Why? Because I have to send the Holy Spirit to you. You guys, trust me, you're going to want this. Want me to just hang out with you guys. The Holy Spirit needs to come. Later in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, Paul would tell the Ephesian church that we are united because we have one faith, one baptism. The reason why we have that is because we have one spirit. This one spirit would come and unite a people for God the right way. And so Jesus ascends and the disciples sit and they wait. They wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Do you remember that? This is Acts chapter 2. And they're sitting in the upper room. They're praying. And then the Spirit shows up. And do you remember the effect of when the Spirit showed up? What happened? They spoke in tongues. So when they came out and started proclaiming the gospel, everybody who normally wouldn't understand them because of the divided languages now understands what they're saying. They said, I, I hear that person saying in my own tongue, but that person's not from where I'm from. They must be drunk. They don't know what else, how else to explain it. Peter begins his sermon by saying, brothers, we're not drunk as you suppose. I, 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 I want to start a sermon that way one day just to see what people say. <laughs> just my opening line. Brothers, I am not drunk. And that's how he started his sermon. Why did he start his sermon that way? Because people that speak one language were speaking a completely different language that they don't speak in their region. And people that don't understand their original language were understanding what they were saying about the gospel in their own language. They heard it in their own language. Many scholars, many pastors will tell you that Acts chapter 2 is the reversal or the... Uh, Climax to Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Unity is good in Christ. Unity apart from God is not good. It's rebellion. Because every time we unite around our own causes, unite around our own things that we want to do, we unite around it basically saying, let's make the world better by doing this ourselves. And generations will speak of how this was the decade where things started turning around because we came together. Came together around what? Science, advancement, progress, ingenuity. We're fools. There's so much that science can't explain. It is dumbfounding that they can say things like, we know enough now. Are you kidding me? Ask a scientist if light is made of photons or particles or waves. I don't know. But they just know that they'll figure it out. So we don't need God. You read the book of Revelation. You see the city of Babylon rising up against God. Mankind uniting as an affront to God. And Jesus comes down, takes them out, and puts his city with his people I love how even in our songs today, a couple of them talked about how every nation, every tongue, every tribe will come and worship the Lamb. There will be unity, but only in Christ. Because we're made in His image, therefore we're His people. You know, what begins 
This begins at the personal level. This begins with a person thinking, yeah, that's true. I'm pretty good. It begins with that thing that lies deeply, deep in our hearts. Yeah, I feel pretty good about myself. I'm doing pretty well. I don't really need God that much anymore. Who cares what he says? And some of us don't say it like they did. Let us, you know, let us push God away. It may not be something you write down in your journal. But if you look at your life, and there's an area or two or three or more that's disobedient. You haven't really paid attention to it. If somebody brings it up, it kind of bothers you. You want to stuff it down. You want to bury it. You want to kind of not pay attention to it. But you know it's not right. You know that's not what the Lord wants. But you kind of ignore it. What's behind that? What's behind that is you feeling like you don't need God that much. This is why so many of us, you know, when a loved one is sick in the hospital or we get diagnosed with something, or suddenly it's, oh, uh, uh, you know, God, uh, please help me. I'll start going to church. I'll start doing this. See, we, we want to rectify the bad things we were doing so that we can get God's attention. The reverse is true as well. When I feel like I don't need his attention, then I don't need to rectify anything. And so when you see things that are happening in your life, patterns of disobedience, pause and ask yourself, where is that coming from? I, I wasn't doing that before. I used to care a lot more about that, and I've kind of given up that battle. Why is that happening? Well, take another look at your life and see how things are maybe going well. Some things are going well, and well enough for you to say, I don't need to throw myself at God's feet right now. I'm not really desperate for him. But if you were desperate for him, then the obedience level would go up. So we all have various levels of rebellion in our hearts. And rebellion often starts with not feeling your need for God. And we need to come to that place where we recognize, man, I don't know anything. I'm, <laughs> you know, when Isaiah saw the Lord, he didn't think, man, I'm going to be one of the biggest writing prophets in the Bible. One of my chapters is going to be about this. Who can write about this? I'm looking at God. I'm looking at his angels. Man, I must be special prophets. All he described was the trail of his robe. He can't see the train of his robe. He can't pick his eyes up to see much else. The angels themselves are covering their eyes, and he could barely glance at them. And his first instinct was, woe is me. I'm a ruined creature. I have, I have unclean lips. I don't speak right. I shouldn't talk in this presence, and I should die. The only reason why he lived is because the angel grabbed the coal from the altar, touched it to his lips and said, you can speak now. God didn't go, no, you're so awesome, Isaiah. You can speak whenever you want. He goes, no, you're right, but let me do something first. Sears his lips, now you can talk. And so God's message to us throughout the whole Bible is, you are rebellious, you need me. Come to me, I'll atone you. Come to me, I'll clean you up. Don't think you're going to clean yourself up and then you can come to me. That's the same as going, let me make a name for myself first. Then I can come and praise God's name. No. That's rebellion. We come before God admitting that we need him desperately. And then he can come aside, alongside us and give us grace rather than opposition. Let's pray. Father, we, um, 
we confess to you that there are things that we should be doing better. We confess to you there are things in our lives that we shouldn't be doing, but we continue to do them. Uh, maybe some of us in here developed a habit of ignoring you, ignoring your voice, and maybe your voice is just keeps getting quieter as we keep drowning it out with the noise of our own self-advancement. So Father, we pray that that voice would be louder now. We pray that we would um, have the humility to surrender to you and ask you to help us with these areas of rebellion, of disobedience, of not following you. Um, Lord, we don't want to leave here um, ignoring those issues. And we don't want to leave here thinking so greatly of ourselves that we don't need you. Um, We pray that we would sense right now how desperately we need you. And that the result of that would be greater obedience. There are people in the seats right now that are thinking of specific things as you bring it to their minds. I pray that they would be able to lay that down right here. And they would lean on your grace for you to make the change in them so that this week they could squash that. Next time the temptation comes knocking that they don't have to open that door because they're not a slave to sin anymore if they're found in Jesus Christ. And for those in here this morning who maybe don't know Jesus, Lord, I pray that they would come and find someone to talk to about that and say, I need this, I need this. I'm in rebellion. I want to, I want to worship. I want to be about God's name, not my name, because my name's not working out. We need your grace to realize those things, God. As we close in this song of worship, may you receive it as a sweet fragrance. May you receive it as a sincere, authentic proclamation of who you are and surrender of our hearts to you. We pray in Jesus' name.